This week marks one year after the mass shooting that took place at Oxford High School. A student who was 15 at the time shot and killed four classmates and wounded seven other people. Earlier this week, we devoted an hour to the voices of teachers, family members, and student survivors who continue to grapple with trauma, searching for a path toward some kind of healing. Meanwhile, the courts continue to process the shooter's case, as well as his parents. There are a lot of different opinions about what should happen to them. I think I don't think there's a person out there who hasn't heard about them that, that hasn't expressed some type of frustration about what type of parents they were. But whether or not they're criminals, that they broke a criminal law, you know, I, I'm not sure that's going to be decided. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Jennifer and James Crumbly, the shooter's parents, are facing charges of involuntary manslaughter. But the trial has yet to proceed, with the Michigan Supreme Court issuing stays on both parents' cases. Teresa Baldus has been following this story for the Detroit Free Press. She talked us through the reason for the delay and what may happen to the defendants should the case proceed. Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald was the one who filed charges against the Crumbleys. Teresa explained McDonald's reasoning. Karen has said from the beginning that this particular shooting has an unusual set of facts that other school shootings don't. And and the big issue being that the parents bought their son the gun that he used in the shooting. Um, And and all his signs of mental illness ahead of time, uh, things they could have done, should have seen, uh, yet they they bought their son a gun and he used it in in this shooting. And so uh, while, yes, this hasn't been done before, uh, she has acknowledged she's uh, testing some uh, uncharted waters here, but um, an unusual and troubling set of facts in this case that she felt uh, warranted uh, filing involuntary manslaughter charges. Can you take us through some of the arguments that James and Jennifer Crumbly's attorneys have put forward about, you know, about why this case that Prosecutor McDonald has has put together against them will not ultimately hold water? Uh, sure. And, and, and from the public's perspective, I, I'm sure there's this uh, belief out there like, you know, how how were these parents not grossly negligent? They had a troubled son. They bought him a gun. He shot up his school. They never informed the school that he had that gun. All that points to gross negligent, according to the prosecutor. But on the defense side, here is what the law requires. Um, the 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 Crumbleys, according to their attorneys, broke no law. There was no duty on them to tell the school that we bought our son a gun. I know that may be a lot for the public to swallow, but it stems from this. There is no, the general public does not have a duty to act. For example, if you see someone stepping in front of of a train and, and they're trying to kill themselves and you don't do anything, you can't be sued over that. You cannot be held liable. This is the same philosophy that's being applied to the Crumbleys. And more than that, the defense argues, and this is their strongest point, the prosecution can never prove that the Crumbleys knew their son was going to do this. You know, buying a gun um, is not necessarily illegal, although the federal government can step in and say it's illegal to buy a minor a gun. But parents buy guns and take their kids target shooting all the time. Um, So the big key here is that, you know, can the prosecution show that the Crumbleys knew their son 
was going to do this. And the defense says that they can never show that. And more than that, the Crumbly say, we never knew our kid was going to do this. We never knew that. We never expected this. So that's that's where the uh, these charges uh, get difficult to prove. The defendant's attorneys have suggested that the charges were improperly approved. If I understand this right, the, the case has not even gone forward yet, but the Michigan Court of Appeals was asked to decide whether the Crumbly's trial should proceed. Is that correct? Uh, yes. And the, the Court of Appeals actually hasn't even taken it up. They simply said uh, this doesn't warrant a review and, uh, and, and set the stage for a trial. So uh, James and Jennifer Crumbly's lawyers appealed to the Michigan Supreme Court and they took a step back and said, uh, wait a minute, you know, this does need a review. And according to multiple uh, criminal defense experts I spoke with, you know, they, they see this as a, a significant sign of, of what the Supreme Court may do uh, if it gets to them, that, there's, that, there ha- that the court is having some trouble uh, accepting uh, the philosophy under which these charges were brought. Right. So basically, uh, just to just to summarize, the the state Supreme Court was saying, uh, yes, these charges do need some some further review before they can go forward. And I believe there's about a two and a half month pause on the case now while that gets worked out. Who's who's going to be doing that sorting? Well, the Supreme Court hasn't weighed in at all on, on whether there's merit to it or not. It has simply said the Michigan Court of Appeals needs to look at this. And um, and so the trial was set for January 17th. You know, the, the, and this is going to be many months delay uh, for this. So, so essentially, now both parties get to go back to the Michigan Court of Appeals and argue whether or not these charges were warranted. That hasn't, hasn't happened yet. Right. Teresa, do you think this is any kind of predictor about ultimately what's going to happen to James and Jennifer Crumbly? You know, I get asked that question a lot, and and after writing about this so much, I it's it, it's hard to say. I you know a lot of experts I've talked to um, think that what's going to happen in this case, should it go to trial, is you're going to either get an emotional verdict, and it's going to get overturned on appeal, or you're going to get a hung jury. Um, there's a there's a lot of uh, different opinions about what should happen to them. I suspect, you know, on appeal, just given what the Supreme Court has done and what uh, experts have told me, experts suspect that the that the higher courts um, may look at this and say, you know what, the charges weren't warranted. We should note that the shooter himself, James and Jennifer's son, Ethan, pleaded guilty on all charges earlier this year. Can you catch us up on where things stand with respect to his sentencing? Uh, yes. So what's coming up next for Ethan is uh, because he's a juvenile and the Supreme Court has waited on this, you can't automatically sentence a juvenile to life in prison without parole. That's what the uh, prosecutor has recommended. So they're going to have a hearing. It's called a Miller hearing that comes uh, that's coming up in February where uh, both sides will argue for and against um, sentencing him to life in prison. And uh a judge will have to decide if uh, if if this case warrants that. Uh, he's entitled to that type of hearing. Uh, I, I've been told that one of the reasons he pled guilty so early on is that he's hoping for consideration of of not getting a life sentence without parole. That that the courts would treat him uh, as as a juvenile and give him some credit for 
for acknowledging everything and possibly giving him a chance at getting out as an adult. Whether or not that happens, you know, remains to be seen. But uh, that that sort of some of the uh, thought process I've been told that went on behind the scenes. Have you seen any evidence of communication between Ethan Crumbly and his parents? There have been moments when their their defense strategies have certainly not necessarily aligned. But do you know if they're communicating even for personal reasons? Uh, there's a court order that prohibits all three of them from communicating with one another. So I'm not sure how they would get around that. I've seen no evidence of them personally communicating. Now, perhaps their lawyers are. I do know the parents want to use uh, their son, should their case go to trial, as a witness in their case. Um, he has stepped forward and said, I am the one who's responsible about this. But what we, you know, we're seeing some interesting uh uh, information come forward from Ethan Crumbly, particularly where he comes out and says, but I gave my parents the money for the gun. Is that him throwing his parents under the bus even more? Um, is this a kid that's upset that that feels his parents uh, let him down, didn't do enough for him? Um, some people think so. But um, there, there's nothing to lead me to believe that they've been actually communicating with one another. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we turn to recent claims from former members of the Oxford School Board. Back in a moment. Support for the Stateside Podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. So in other news this week, two former Oxford School Board members went public, claiming that the district repeatedly failed to follow its own procedures, assessing threat and reacting when some staff members in the Oxford High Building identified Ethan Crumbly showing risk behaviors. Folks may remember that he and his parents were called into an office meeting and then he was returned to class uh, just before the shooting. Teresa, can you summarize what was supposed to have happened when a student is identified as possibly showing risk behavior? Uh, sure. So it turns out that uh, the Oxford School District and the high school have had a threat assessment policy on the book since 2004. Under this policy, when, when, uh, when red flags go up about a student like this, uh, for example, the day he was caught researching bullets, ammunition on his cell phone in class. What should have happened under their own policy is a threat assessment team is formed. It includes the principal, the assistant principal, a counselor, dean of students, a social worker, possibly law enforcement. I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty large group who are supposed to get together and look at what, and assess the threat and figure out what to do. 
under their own policy, uh, Ethan Crumbly should have been removed from school that day. The school had the authority and the power to do it, but they didn't. Uh, a phone call was made to his mom that said, your son, you know, we saw him researching bullets in class. She never called back. Uh, in fact, she um, texted her son and said something to the effect of, uh, I'm not mad. Uh, you have to learn not to get caught, LOL. So that was that. The next day, you know, he they find him with this troubling drawing of a gun and blood and the words, the thoughts won't stop, help me. So this is the second day. Again, a, a larger team should have been uh, assessing this and looking at this. Again, they had the authority and the power to remove him from school, but they did not. They caved to the parents' demands who said, no, we're not bringing him home, put him back in class, and, and we know the awful tragedy that followed. What stood out to me most interesting in this about that a larger team was supposed to be assembled, it came down to two people. The dean of students and the school counselor were the only ones who dealt with Ethan Crumbly that day. They were the ones who made the call. It was never even elevated to the principal's office. It did not go to the principal. It didn't go to the assistant principal. The superintendent himself has come out and said this. So what you have are are two people who made a pretty critical decision that unfortunately led to tragedy. Uh, Teresa, I'm trying to get my head around what this means. If what they're saying is true, are, 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 were they saying that the protocols weren't followed because staff didn't know uh, what they were supposed to res do responsibly? Or were they saying that this, this is just, this is a procedure that's impossible for schools to follow through on in a timely fashion? Do you have any sense of that? Uh, actually, what, what they came out and said were two things. One, this policy was on the books, but no one was ever trained for it. So it's not like just that they ignored it, but that the school district itself never trained anyone for this policy. And after the shooting, um, the, you know, the there was much made about uh, a policy and people who have been trained in, in threat assessment. But um these board members said, you know what, until this shooting happened, we never heard anything about it. No one had ever been trained. And um, the superintendent who who resigned, I believe, was one who was supposed to enforce this policy and, and never did. So you had a you had a policy on the books that no one was ever trained for. Yeah. These two former board members who spoke out, Tom Donnelly and Corey Bailey, I mean, Tom Donnelly, I think, is the former board president. Right. Did they say why they're speaking out now? You know, we, we asked that question many times, and uh, essentially they'd wanted to speak out before, but had to have all their uh, information correct before they did. So what they did, they embarked on their own investigation before coming forward with all this. So they said after months and months of being told, you know, you got everything's okay, everything was fine. They they began to get suspicious and started, you know, looking into this so-called 8400 policy that they heard was on the books. And so they did their digging on their own. And, you know, when they, after talking to many people, um, uh, about the policy who said, you know, we, we've, we've never been trained for it. We don't know about it. They, they just couldn't take it anymore and said, you know what, it's, it's time. So it was, it was, uh, you know, just all a matter of, of, of them being ready to do it and feeling confident that they were okay to do it. They were pretty emotional and pretty adamant that, that I don't want to use the word to cover up, but that, uh, that they've been misled, that, uh, that this could have been prevented that the school district knows this 
and um, they're trying to minimize their liability. I mean, they, they've they've come out and said this, and they feel that they were also a part of it, and they couldn't take that. They were repeating information that was given to them, and then they were told they couldn't share certain things. And after a while, they're like, "Enough, we're 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 coming clean. We're going to share this," and that's what they've done. The parents of some of the victims of the shooting have have echoed some of these challenges to the district stance. As you said, the superintendent who was on the job at the time of the shooting is no longer with the district. The next superintendent has announced he's taking medical leave and will be resigning after that. It's it's kind of hard to think through what forms accountability might take. What comes to mind for you? Well, I think the lawsuits are going to dig up a lot more discovery. We're, we're going to find out a lot more information about what what happened, what should have happened. And and I, I don't think that there's anybody in that school or the school district that um, that doesn't feel bad about this. I, I know their, you know, their position is that there there's, you know, there was never anything intentional here. But, you know, as a reporter looking at all this, um, and, and we we get this a lot that, oh, you know, journalists, you're just out there always trying to point a finger, always trying to blame someone, always you know, tr- trying to to dig up uh, bad stuff about people who just were doing their best. But really, it, it, it is about accountability and about preventing it going forward. I don't think we're going to see criminal charges against anyone in the school district, but I think these these lawsuits are, are going to produce something. Just a reminder that we've devoted an hour to the voices of those affected by the Oxford shooting. You can hear from teachers, some family members and friends in conversations with each other about what life after the tragedy has looked like. You can find it right next to this episode in our podcast feed. And you can also stream it at michiganradio.org. That's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm April Bear. You can find full Stateside episodes ready for streaming at michiganradio.org. Today's pod episode was produced by Ronia Kavansag. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our podcast editor is Rachel Ishikawa. Our executive producer is Laura Weber-Davis. Music for the podcast comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.